0: Section 14 of Religious Studies, Sketches, and Poems. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Lois Beechy-Yoder, Charlotte, North Carolina. Religious Studies, Sketches, and Poems by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Christ and the Fallen Woman. The absolute divinity of Jesus, the height at which he stood above all men, is nowhere so shown as in what he dared and did for woman, and the godlike consciousness of authority with which he did it. It was at a critical period in his ministry, when all eyes were fixed on him in keen inquiry, when many of the respectable classes were yet trembling in the balance whether to accept his claims or not, that Jesus in the calmest and most majestic manner took the ground that the sins of a fallen woman were like any other sins, and that repentant love entitled to equal forgiveness. The story so wonderful can be told only in the words of the sacred narrative. And one of the Pharisees desired that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meat. And behold, a woman in that city, which was a sinner, When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, this man if he were a prophet would have known who and what manner of woman this is for she is a sinner and jesus answering said unto him simon i have somewhat to say unto thee he said unto him master say on there was a certain creditor had two debtors the one owed him five hundred pence and the other fifty and when they had nothing to pay he frankly forgave them both tell me therefore which will love him most simon answered and said i suppose he to whom he forgave most and he said unto him thou hast rightly judged and he turned to the woman and said unto simon seest thou this woman i entered into thy house and thou gavest me no water for my feet but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head thou gavest me no kiss but this woman since the time i came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet my head with oil thou didst not anoint but she hath anointed my feet with ointment wherefore i say unto you her sins which are many are forgiven her for she loved much but to whom little is forgiven the same loveth little and he said unto her thy sins are forgiven and they that sat at meat began to say within themselves who is this that forgiveth sins also and he said to the woman thy faith hath saved thee go in peace nothing can be added to the pathos and solemn dignity of this story in which our lord assumed with tranquil majesty the rights to supreme love possessed by the creator and his sovereign power to forgive sins and dispense favors The Repentant Magdalene became henceforth one of the characteristic figures in the history of the Christian Church. Mary Magdalene became eventually a prominent character in the mythic legends of the medieval mythology. A long history of missionary labors and enthusiastic preaching of the gospel in distant regions of the earth is ascribed to her. Churches arose that bore her name. Hymns were addressed to her. Even the reforming Savonarola addresses one of his spiritual canticles to St. Mary Magdalene. The various pictures of her which occur in every part of Europe are a proof of the interest which these legends inspired. The most of them are wild and poetic and exhibit a striking contrast to the concise brevity and simplicity of the New Testament story. The mythic legends make up a romance in which Mary, the sister of Martha, and Mary Magdalene, the sinner, are oddly considered as the same person. It is sufficient to read the chapter in St. John, which gives an account of the raising of Lazarus, to perceive that such a confusion is absurd. Mary and Martha there appear as belonging to a family in good standing to which many flocked with expressions of condolence and respect in time of affliction. And afterwards, in that grateful feast made for the restoration of their brother, We read that so many flocked to the house that the jealousy of the chief priests was excited. All these incidents, representing a family of respectability, are entirely inconsistent with any such supposition. But while we repudiate this extravagance of the tradition, there does seem ground for identifying the Mary Magdalene, who was one of the most devoted followers of our Lord, with the forgiven sinner of this narrative. We read of a company of women who followed Jesus and ministered to him. In the 8th chapter of Luke, he is said to be accompanied by certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, among whom is mentioned Mary called Magdalene, as having been a victim of demonical possession. Some women of rank and fortune also are mentioned as members of the same company. Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others who ministered to him out of their substance. A modern commentator thinks it improbable that Mary Magdalene could be identified with the sinner spoken of by St. Luke because women of standing like Joanna and Susanna would not have received one of her class to their company. We ask, why not? If Jesus had received her, had forgiven and saved her, if he acknowledged previously her grateful ministrations, Is it likely that they would reject her? It was the very peculiarity and glory of the new kingdom that it had a better future for sinners and for sinful women as well as sinful men. Jesus did not hesitate to say to the proud and prejudiced religious aristocracy of his day, The publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of heaven before you. We cannot doubt that the loving Christian women who ministered to Jesus received this penitent sister as a soul absolved and purified by the sovereign word of their Lord, and henceforth there was for her a full scope for that ardent, self-devoting power of her nature, which had been her ruin, and was now to become her salvation. Some commentators seem to think that the dreadful, demonical possession which was spoken of in Mary Magdalene proves her not to have been identical with the woman of St. Luke, but on the contrary, it would seem exactly to account for actions of a strange and unaccountable wickedness, for a notoriety in crime that went far to lead the Pharisees to feel that her very touch was pollution. The story is symbolic of what is too often seen in the fall of woman. A noble and beautiful nature, wrecked through inconsiderate prodigality of love, Deceived, betrayed, ruined, often drifts like a shipwrecked bark into the power of evil spirits. Rage, despair, revenge, cruelty take possession of the crushed ruin that should have been the home of the sweetest affections. We are not told when or where the healing word was spoken that drove the cruel fiends from Myriad's soul. Perhaps before she entered the halls of the Pharisee, while listening to the preaching of Jesus, the madness and despair had left her. We can believe that in his higher moods virtue went from him, and there was around him a holy and cleansing atmosphere from which all evil fled away, a serene and healing purity which calmed the throbbing fever of passion and gave the soul once more the image of its better self. We see in the manner in which Mary found her way to the feet of Jesus the directness and vehemence, the uncalculating self-sacrifice and self-abandon of one of those natures which when they move, move with a rush of undivided impulse, which when they love, trust all, believe all, and are ready to sacrifice all. As once she had lost herself in this self-abandonment, so now at the feet of her God she gains all by the same power of self-surrender." We do not meet Mary Magdalene again till we find her at the foot of the cross, sharing the last anguish of our Lord and his mother. We find her watching the sepulchre, preparing sweet spices for embalming. In the dim gray of the resurrection morning, she is there again, only to find the sepulchre open and the beloved form gone. Everything in this vast scene is in consistency with the idea of the passionate self-devotion of a nature whose soul life is in its love. The disciples, when they found not the body, went away. But Mary stood without the sepulchre weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre. The angel said to her, Woman, why weepest thou? She answered, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. She then turns and sees through her tears dimly the form of a man standing there. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will go and take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni! Master, in all this we see the characteristic devotion and energy of her who loved much because she was forgiven much. It was the peculiarity of Jesus that he saw the precious capability of every nature, even in the very dust of defilement. The power of devoted love is the crown jewel of the soul, and Jesus had the eye to see where it lay trampled in the mire, and the strong hand to bring it forth purified and brightened. It is the deepest malignity of Satan to degrade and ruin souls through love. It is the glory of Christ through love to redeem and restore. In the history of Christ as a teacher, it is remarkable that while he was an object of enthusiastic devotion to so many women, while a band of them followed his preaching and ministered to his wants and those of his disciples, yet there was about him something so entirely unworldly, so sacredly high and pure that even the very suggestion of scandal in this regard is not to be found in the bitterest vituperations of his enemies of the first two centuries. If we compare Jesus with Socrates, the moral teacher most frequently spoken of as approaching him, we shall see a wonderful contrast. Socrates associated with courtesans, without passion and without reproof, in a spirit of half-sarcastic philosophic tolerance. No quickening of the soul of woman, no call to a higher life came from him. Jesus is stern and grave in his teachings of personal purity, severe in his requirements. He was as intolerant to sin as he was merciful to penitence. He did not extenuate the sins he forgave. He declared the sins of Mary to be many in the same breath that he pronounced her pardon. He said to the adulterous woman whom he protected, Go, sin no more. The penitents who joined the company of his disciples were so raised above their former selves that instead of being the shame, they were the glory of the new kingdom. St. Paul says to the first Christians, speaking of the adulterous and impure, Such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. The tradition of the church that Mary Magdalene was an enthusiastic preacher of Jesus seems in keeping with all we know of the strength and fervor of her character. Such love must find expression, and we are told that when the first persecution scattered the little church at Jerusalem, they that were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Some of the most effective preaching of Christ is that of those who testify in their own person of a great salvation. He can save to the uttermost, for he has saved me, is a testimony that often goes more straight to the heart than all the arguments of learning. Christianity has had this peculiarity over all other systems, that it not only forgave the past, but made of its bitter experiences a healing medicine, so that those who had sinned deepest might have therefrom a greater redeeming power. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren, was the watchword of the penitent. The wonderful mind of Goethe has seized upon and embodied this peculiarity of Christianity in his great poem of Faust. The first part shows the devil-making of the sweetest and noblest affection of the confiding Margaret, a cruel poison to corrupt both body and soul. We see her driven to crime, remorse, shame, despair, all human forms and forces of society united to condemn her when with the last cry she stretches her poor hands to heaven and says, Judgment of God, I commend myself to you. And then falls a voice from heaven, She is judged, she is saved. In the second part, we see the world-worn, weary Faust passing through the classic mythology, vainly seeking rest and finding none. He seeks rest in a life of benevolence to man, but fiends of darkness conflict with his best aspirations and dog his steps through life, and in his dying hour gather round to seize his soul and carry it to perdition. But around him is a shining band, mary the mother of jesus with a company of purified penitents encircle him and his soul passes in infantine weakness to the guardian arms of margaret once a lost and ruined woman now a strong and pitiful angel who like a tender mother leads the newborn soul to look upon the glories of heaven while angel voices sing to the victory of good over evil all that is transient is but a parable the unattainable here is made real the indescribable here is accomplished the eternal womanly draws us upward and onward end of section fourteen